from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Denali Weiler. Denali grew up in the rural Northwest. As a teenager, she was caught up in the pressures of fitting in, and the Baha'i faith wasn't conducive to that. When she graduated from high school, she decided to go on a Baha'i year of service, which Denali explains is an opportunity for a young Baha'i person to give a year of service to help the Baha'i faith somewhere. She chose Ecuador because it sounded like a great place to travel and she had certain expectations of what her experience would be like serving in Ecuador. The experience was much different than her expectations, and the hardship of the year of service actually confirmed her in the Baha'i faith. She wrote a book about her experience titled, Arising, a Year of Service Handbook for Volunteers. Before playing Denali's interview, I would like to play an excerpt from the podcast Interfaith Voices by Maureen Fiedler. Maureen interviewed Rain Wilson in one of her sessions. You can find the Interfaith Voices podcast at interfaithradio.org. Here is Maureen Fiedler interviewing Rain Wilson. Welcome to Interfaith Voices. I'm Maureen Fiedler. Rain Wilson is best known for playing Dwight Schrute the geeky, arrogant, know-it-all salesman on NBC's TV comedy, The Office. Dwight's interests include beet farming, science fiction novels, and violent weaponry of all kinds. Rain Wilson also played a failed rock and roll star in the movie The Rocker and a creepy assistant mortician in the show Six Feet Under. But Rain Wilson is a devout member of the Baha'i faith, At Interfaith Voices, we wondered how he put all this together in one life. He's been a devout Baha'i all his life, minus an eight-year hiatus in his youth. Rain Wilson, welcome to Interfaith Voices. Thanks for having me. Let's start with what the Baha'i faith is all about, because most people, frankly, don't know much about it. Can you give us Baha'i 101, its core beliefs? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to sum up uh, a major world religion in a, you know, in a nutshell. But essentially, the Baha'is believe that there is only one God and that there is only one religion. This God makes himself known to humankind through various divine prophets or messengers throughout time. Mm -hmm. Baha'is believe that the Buddha is a divine messenger, that Krishna, Abraham, Jesus, Muhammad, all of the world's great prophets and messengers are coming from the same God, giving a slightly different message depending on the people that they're speaking to for that time. But their core beliefs, their core teachings are 
the same. And Baha'is believe that a man who goes by the name of Baha'u'llah is the most recent manifestation of God, the most recent prophet of God. He came in Persia in the mid-1800s, and that his message can solve the essential spiritual disease that is affecting all of humanity right now. Mm. And that disease is the disunity of world religions in the views of the Baha'i faith. Uh, the disease is, is on many different levels. It's not just the dissension and disunity of religions. Um, there's economic issues. One of the core beliefs of the Baha'i faith is the elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty. Uh, one of Baha'u'llah's teachings is the best beloved of all sight in my things is justice. So the idea of social justice is a spiritual teaching in the Baha'i faith. It's not some abstract thing that justice comes from God and that mankind can never be united unless justice is perpetrated on the planet. So crimes against the environment, um, gender issues, the, the equality of men and women is a, is a core belief of the Baha'i faith. There are right. many different problems that are leading to this dis-ease that humanity is experiencing right now. Mm. And of course, in many of those beliefs, many of those beliefs are shared across faith traditions. I think that's what you mean by when you say that at the core, the messages are very much alike for these prophetic figures. Absolutely. In every religion, you will find the golden rule in some way, shape, or form. At least you can unite behind the golden rule whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a mm -hmm. Muslim or Christian. Yeah, you'd think we could, but sometimes when you look at what's going on in the world, we certainly don't. Indeed. Now, I know you were raised in a devout Baha'i family. Were you the only Baha'i family in your neighborhood or school? Um, I was, when I was growing up, I was the only, only Baha'i in my school. This was in suburban Seattle and back in the 70s and there were a lot of Baha'is all, all around. I mean, we lived in a little suburb called Lake Forest Park, Washington, and there were, you know, 10 or 11 Baha'is there and some in the neighboring communities. So, you know, I got to meet a bunch of other Baha'i kids that I grew up with at neighboring elementary schools mm -hmm. and junior high schools and stuff like so that. So you didn't feel like an outsider? Well, certainly a bit at my school being the only Baha'i, but, you know, no one ever gave me a hard time about it. I... People have always been so just accepting and curious about the Baha'i faith. Um, I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist area, so people were generally pretty open and accepting to people of different spiritual beliefs. Mm. Now, in your 20s, you did what a lot of young people in their 20s do. You left the faith. And I wonder what happened. Why did you depart from the Baha'i faith? Well, you know, you adopt the religion of your parents, and... Then you go away to college, and you're exposed to a lot of different things. And I'm not just talking about, like, the, the obvious, you know, drugs or alcohol or sex or something like that. But, you know, I moved to New York City when I was 20 years old, and frankly, I got fed up with the Baha'is. You know, I didn't like what I saw, and they were disorganized, and I tried to get some things going, and I was frustrated and became disenchanted with the people of my faith, as I think a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. um, I've since learned that people are imperfect. I believe that my faith is perfect and that God's guidance is perfect and true and beautiful. The people don't always follow it perfectly. And How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and um, number two, 
I just was in a rebellious stage where I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. I didn't want any moral laws over my head. And also for me at that time, I was devoting myself to the craft of theater. I was going to acting school. I was here in New York. First of all, my career became the most important thing in my life. And number two, my art kind of became my religion. I really thought that theater um, and language and poetry and these things that we were dealing with could unite the hearts of mankind. And I threw myself in with the same fervor I grew up with in the Baha'i faith. I threw that fervor into my journey as an, as an artist and as an actor. Mm. What brought you back to Baha'i? Well, cut to many years later, and, uh, you know, I've been doing... Um, uh, I've done a lot of theater at that point. I have a pretty good career going as an actor, never really making any money, but always working. And I just felt something missing in my life. And it was one of those ineffable things. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I just felt a little bit of emptiness, just a little hollowness. There's just got to be more. There's got to mm -hmm. be more here. So I, what I decided to do was uh, try to come to an understanding of like, well, do I believe in God or not? Because mm. this is the thing that kind of drives me up the wall about my generation and the generation younger than mine. And that is if you ask, ask someone in their 30s, hey, do you believe in God? And they'll say, well, yeah, kind of. I kind of do, sure. Um, you know, I don't believe in an old man with a beard who's really judgmental, but um, I kind of have a sense of a something, a loving creator force out there. And so it's kind of like it's neither here nor there. And I kind of felt like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like everyone else that I'm dealing with. Uh, I don't want to be one of those people kind of on the fence. I, you either believe in God or you don't. Um, and then if you do believe in God, which ultimately, long, long, long story short, we're talking several years here, I read all the world's great religious books. I read the Bible. Wow. I read the Quran. I read the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapadas of the Buddha. Um, mm. Not I, many people can say that. Um, not not many. Um, but I really wanted to kind of go back to the source. I, and then I turned to Baha'i books. And after much, you know, just meditation and talk and philosophy and reading and thinking, like, I decided at that point I couldn't believe in God, but I could believe in Wankantanka. What is Wankantanka? Wankantanka is the god of the Lakota Indians. I could believe in the Great Spirit. Okay. I could believe in the great spirit. I could believe in the idea that there's this spirit that runs throughout nature and the universe that is kind of loving and healing and taking care of humankind as well as the plants and the animals. But I couldn't believe in God. Uh-huh. So after I believed in Wankantanka, I was like, okay, I'm going to believe in the great spirit. I would even pray to the great spirit. I wouldn't pray to God, just the great spirit. This is what led me back to the Baha'i faith because it just spoke to the very needs of this day and age, and it made the mm. most sense to me, and that's kind of what brought me back around. Wow. Now, I want to tie all this for a minute into your work. It, it's interesting that your character on The Office, Dwight Schrute, is, to put it mildly, arrogant and intolerant. And to give us some idea of what Dwight is like, I'm going to play this short scene in which you're announcing to your office mates the Secret Santa Gift Exchange. <laughs> now, let's play it, and then, Rain, maybe you can tell us what we learn about Dwight Schrute from this. Sure, absolutely. Time to get your presents, wrap them, and place them under the tree, like so. If you do not get your present wrapped and under the tree within the next five minutes, 
you will be disqualified from Secret Santa. All right? No exceptions, except Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Phil, how does that lead you to describe Dwight Schrute? Well, I thought you did an excellent job. I was actually marveling at your uh, your early description and your your introduction of me. I think uh, <laughs> geeky and arrogant is awesome. Uh, the thing I love about Dwight is is how complex he is. You know, on a lesser show, Dwight Schrute would just be like the nerdy guy with the plastic pocket pencil protector, you know. And yeah, but he's more than a nerdy. <laughs> yeah, he's nerd. He's kind of white trashy a little bit. He likes to drive a Camaro and listen to heavy metal. He's a gamer, he's a hunter, he's a farmer, he's a German, maybe part Nazi, Um, he's a romantic, he's heartbroken, he's a fierce competitor, but but he's also kind of an idiot. He's the best salesman in the office, but you can can steal his desk and hide it in the bathroom and he, he won't know how to find it. So I love how the writers have just crafted such a kind of complex, multifaceted character out of The Office Geek. But actually, a lot of the characters you play are lowlifes or scumbags. And I'm wondering, playing characters like that, does it wear on your soul at all? Well, that's an excellent question. And this tying back to my spiritual belief and my spiritual journey, it does it wear on my soul? Uh, One that I had a hard time with was this movie, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, where I played this kind of like womanizing misogynist guy but my way to kind of like to justify it was that he's so pathetic and laughable uh in his misogyny that it actually kind of helps the cause of women Uh um it doesn't wear on my soul because i tell you what those are the people i identify with and these are the people that i play the best i like losers and outcasts and and creeps and and weirdos and failures and you know, people with big hearts that just can't quite fit in or make it in the world. I wouldn't know how to play someone that's popular and well-liked and well-adjusted. I just don't mm-hmm. have an affinity for those kind of characters. You know, I like to play the underdog in, in film and TV. We're speaking with actor Rain Wilson. That was Greensleeves, a traditional English ballad about the beheaded Anne Boleyn. And now, a very special treat a book my grandmother used to read me when I was a kid. This is a very special story. It's called Struhlpeter by Heinrich Hoffmann from 1864. The great tall tailor always comes to little girls that suck their thumbs. Are you listening, Sasha? Right? And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and then cuts their thumbs clean off. Dwight, Here's Dwight, what the hell are you reading? These are cautionary tales for kids. My yeah, grandma you know no, 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 they, no. Yes. The kids don't want to hear some weirdo book that your Nazi war criminal grandmother gave you. What's a Nazi? What's a Nazi? Nazi was a fascist don't, movement from the don't, 1930s. Don't, don't, don't talk about Germany. Nazis in front of You know what? They're going to have nightmares, so why don't you just shut it? I was going to teach the children how to make corn husk dolls. <sighs> why don't you just leave, okay? If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Rain Wilson, the actor who plays the dweeby Dwight Schrute on the sitcom The Office. And so when Dwight Schrute on The Office subtly puts down women, as he does with some of his jokes, uh, in the face of the fact that there is a Baha'i teaching, which you mentioned, on the equality of women and men, 
I'm wondering, it doesn't sound like you have any difficulty playing this sexist Dwight. Well, yeah, I, I think that there's a purpose of art and there's purpose of religion. There's also the purpose mm-hmm. of entertainment. I have turned down many roles. I've turned down many auditions or meetings for projects that I found morally reprehensible. Those are roles I'm not interested in playing. If I feel like the character makes the world a worse place, I'm just not going to do it. But that being said, in the Baha'i faith, the arts are revered. And um, Abdu'l-Baha, whose name means the servant of glory, he's the son of Baha'u'llah. He kind of took over the stewardship of the faith um, after Baha'u'llah. He talks about how in the eyes of God, there's no difference between art and prayer. And being of service to the world with entertainment, with stories, with beautiful pictures, with song, whatever it is, um, I understand he also told jokes a lot. Uh, yes, yes, he had a great, great sense of humor. Well, I uh, wouldn't be able to quote any Abdu'l-Baha jokes. I don't have any anything from his stand-up act. Um, on, but on I wonder, right? <laughs> I wondered if that had inspired you at all. Um, at the end of the Baha'i prayers, you talk about you know God is the thou art the gracious, thou art the kind, thou art the beneficent. You know, kind of these titles of God. There is a rumor of an untranslated from the Arabic prayer where uh, he's called God the Most Humorous. Um, oh, isn't so, that great? I have never heard that title before. Yes, yeah, so I think uh, in the Baha'i faith, there is a secret tradition of... Uh, Divine humor. Yeah. And, you know, uh, interesting story. Um, Baha'u'llah, when he was living in Baghdad, and he had been uh, imprisoned, uh, tortured, banished from Iran, and he went on a spiritual retreat to the mountains in Iraq and mm-hmm. lived just with a as a beggar with a bowl up in the mountains in the snow owning nothing and he became a poet and mm-hmm. Baha'u'llah spent two years living as a poet in the mountains of Iraq but I thought it was really interesting that he was a poet and he would travel around writing and reciting poetry and that kind of All shows right. you again the importance of the arts in the Baha'i faith now I wonder in Hollywood do you get a lot of questions about the Baha'i faith from other actors or just yeah, people I, you run into? You would th- you'd think I'd, I wouldn't, but um, yeah, a lot of curiosity about, about me as a Baha'i and uh, about the Baha'i faith in general. Mm, do you have company? Are there other Baha'is in Hollywood that you run into? Oh, yeah, or there's you... a lot. There's a lot of Baha'i actors. Anyone whose name we'd recognize? A- a- Ava LaRue, who's on CSI Miami. Um, this guy, Justin Baldoni, was on this show, Everwood. Um Anthony Azizi, he's been on Lost and a number of different, Commander-in-Chief, he's been on a number of different shows, he's a Baha'i, a lot of working Baha'i artists. Wow. Now, I understand you used to host get-togethers at your house that you called Belief Nights. Mm -hmm. What were those all about? Well, one one thing that Baha'is like to do is host, um, you know, devotion and prayer is very important to the Baha'i faith. And as a Baha'i, we open our ho- homes to people of all different beliefs. And mm-hmm. so we opened our house to this. It was after 9-11, and there was a lot of people in a lot of pain and, and a lot of suffering and, a, and hurting and kind of looking for answers. And we called it Belief Night because we would have a little section at the beginning where we'd have different people come and just share a little bit about their religious beliefs. You know, mm. we'd have a Sikh or a Buddhist or a Christian minister or, you know, whomever just come and 
talk for 10 or 15 minutes about, about their belief and, and share some, some aspects of their belief. So it was really a, a multi-faith uh, devotional evenings. And finally, how important do you think interfaith understanding, dialogue, meetings like you had in your own home are these days? Um, I think it's absolutely crucial. I think the world is in a great deal of pain. Uh, an enormous amount of this pain that the world is in is being caused by the world's religions. Uh, Baha'u'llah says very clearly, if religion be a cause of disunity, it were better there were no religion. And mm. I think this is what a lot of young people are responding to right, right now. How can there be a loving, compassionate God? How can there be prophets or messengers how can Jesus be who he says he is if the Christians are causing so much pain in the world and the Protestants and Catholics are shooting each other or the Sunnis and Shiites are shooting each other or the Jews and the Muslims are attacking each other? How can religion possibly be the answer to the world's problems? And it's a hard question to answer. So it is crucial that people of all different kind of belief systems and different religious faiths try and find that commonality like I said, start with the golden rule. Just start with a belief in God or, or a, a love of prayer and come together and seek to be of service to humanity and seek to create unity. That's what it's all about. It doesn't matter what your faith. Mm. Rain Wilson is a Baha'i and an Emmy-nominated actor who is best known for his role as the egomaniacal Dwight Schrute on The Office. He has also starred in Six Feet Under and most recently, The Rocker. Rain Wilson, thanks so much for sharing your Baha'i faith here on Interfaith Voices. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Baha'i Perspective. Now I will play my interview with Denali Weiler. Denali grew up in the rural Northwest. As a teenager, she was caught up in the pressures of fitting in, and the Baha'i faith wasn't conducive to that. When she graduated from high school, she decided to go on a Baha'i year of service, which Denali explains is an opportunity for a young Baha'i person to give a year of service to help the Baha'i faith somewhere. She chose Ecuador because it sounded like a great place to travel, and she had certain expectations of what her experience would be like serving in Ecuador. The experience was much different from her expectations, and the hardship of the year of service actually confirmed her in the Baha'i faith. She wrote a book about her experience titled, Arising, a Year of Service Handbook for Volunteers. I started the interview by asking Denali where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I really had a magical childhood. Um, I was very blessed the way that my parents raised me. I, I was born in Forest Grove, Oregon, lived for a few years in my early childhood at a park, actually. It was called Oxbow Park outside of Portland, Oregon, and my dad was the head park ranger there. The whole park, which was huge, was literally my my backyard, and it was just a dream come true for, you know, a four-year-old kid. I mean, I just spent my days, you know, running around on the trails and hanging out with the campers and the rangers and eating huckleberries and sour grass and, you know, swimming in the river, and it was just, it was wonderful. And then shortly after, I think when I was about seven, 
we moved to a log cabin in the woods in Lyle, Washington, which is um, a town of about, I think the population is about four or 500 maybe, um, but we lived even outside of the town, so it was very rural. You know, had a log cabin with a wood stove and pet goats and a big garden. and uh, So that's where I grew up, and that's where my parents still live. Mm-hmm. So that's really home. You were there all through elementary school, middle school, high school? Yes. And then what happened after high school? Um, well, after high school, I left to do a year of service in Ecuador. Could, maybe you could explain what a year of service is. I mean, there's kind of a whole backstory to this, which I could share if you're interested. So the year of service is um, basically something that Baha'i youth are encouraged to do. It's certainly not obligatory, but um, that, you know, this opportunity often when one graduates from high school or from college, kind of at these times of transition, um, to offer a period of service, um, doing Baha'i service, which is service to humanity in general. And this can be done anywhere. It could be done, you know, in one's own town or in one of the, the Baha'i schools in the United States or abroad. And so I went to Ecuador and, and why did you choose Ecuador? So I grew up as a Baha'i. My parents are both Baha'is and, you know, raised my siblings and me to be Baha'is. And, um, you know, we were very active. I was very active during my childhood. But, um, but then I think when I hit about middle school, I started to realize that, um, that the faith was something really different and that... You know, my classmates were not Baha'is. There were no, you know, again, I lived in a very rural area, and there were not really any other Baha'i youth. Nobody had really heard of the Baha'i faith. I started feeling weird about it and Mm -hmm. insecure about it, and I just wanted so badly to fit in. And, you know, I had this weird name. I remember at one point I I wanted to change my middle name to Nicole just so I would, like, sound more normal. (laughs) And uh, so I started getting really self-conscious about even sharing with people that I was a Baha'i. Through middle and high school, even though I think the Baha'i faith was still really in my heart, it was more on the periphery. It wasn't really central in my life. I kind of allowed myself to be distracted by other pursuits. So this idea of year of service, you know, I always knew about it. I had heard of other Baha'is who had done a year of service, but I wasn't really focused on the service component. I just liked the idea of traveling. You know, I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to kind of have an adventure. And I knew that if I went under the guise of kind of doing service, that, you know, my parents would support it, support me financially. And so it sounded like a great idea. I just didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I just sort of browsed the Internet for service programs and um, in, in Latin America, which is where I wanted to go. And, and you know, folks in Ecuador responded to me, I think, most quickly. And so I just sort of started making plans to go there, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And what, what was your experience in Ecuador like? <laughs> well, what I thought it would be like was um, I didn't even really know that much about Ecuador itself. I kind of thought I would be having a year-long tropical vacation. You know, I thought I'd be on the beach, and, you know, I packed a suitcase full of, like, bikinis and tanning <laughs> oil and sarongs and beach clothes, and I ended up spending the first month and a half in Otavala, which is in the Andes, very far from a beach and very cold. 
you know, the, during those first six weeks, which I had envisioned as being a time to just sort of play and maybe do, you know, a couple hours of sort of volunteer work a day, it ended up being this very intensive training course. I and the other volunteers, we stayed in this Baha'i Institute, they called it, which is, you know, very sparse, just kind of bunk beds and scratchy wool sheets and blankets and, you know, cold showers and, and it, it felt kind of like what I would imagine boot camp to be like. And, you know, we had to wake up at 6 a.m. every morning, and we spent the entire day until about 10 at night with very short breaks just studying the Baha'i writings through these um, books that are called Ruhi, um, which, you know, they're basically passages about different Baha'i themes, um, you know, the spiritual nature of man, the power of prayer, life after death, the greatness of this day, and um, are focused on, on service. So we spent every day for six weeks in this institute studying these writings in Spanish, which I didn't even understand at first. Um, and we would only leave the institute to go carry out these acts of service, like, you know, teaching children's classes, visiting people in their homes, things like that. It was completely the opposite of what I had expected, and it was so hard at first. So hard. I mean, I was 18. I thought I was going to be spending a year just sort of partying and, you know, hanging out on the beach, and I just I couldn't believe what I had gotten myself into, and uh, it was very painful. I cried a lot in those first few weeks. I must say, Denali, that I'm impressed that you had the tenacity to stick with it when it was nothing what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Well, I came very close to just getting on a plane home. And I think it's less of a testament to my tenacity than it is to just my sort of stubborn pride. I really didn't want to come back, you know, sort of with my tail between my legs, just, Mm. you know, like I I made this big deal about going on this trip, and I I felt like I had to stick it out, you know, for my ego's sake. (laughs) And uh, so I kind of hung in there, and, um, you know, Baha'u'llah... Prophet, founder of the Baha'i Faith, talks about immersing ourselves in the ocean of his words. And this was literally what was happening. I mean, it was sort of a forced immersion in this case. It was, you know, I didn't really have a choice but to be just immersed in the study of the Baha'i writings, this very intensive study, even though I was resisting at first and, and didn't even understand the language of these words, they still, I mean, this is the Word of God, the creative Word, and it has such a power on the human heart. And so little by little, it started to have an effect on me. I think, you know, my heart started to open, and I went from being absolutely miserable to, you know, little by little, just sort of falling in love with the faith. Mm. You know, and of course, that's a process that happens over our whole lives, but that year was really a turning point for me. You know, and then I had so many other experiences that really helped strengthen my faith during that year and also to test it as well. Why don't you give me some examples of that? Well, I mean, I think just in general, and I know this is not the case for everybody who grows up in a Baha'i family, mm-hmm. there's this principle in the faith of the independent investigation of the truth, you know, that we're really encouraged to seek out faith and own it and, and just, you know, love it and, and believe it wholeheartedly. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it had been something that, had, had, I had kind of drifted away from because it was just something I had always known. And I am just so grateful that I was sort of given that opportunity to really be tested and to seek it out on my own. 
Shoghi Effendi, the Baha'i, the guardian of, of the Baha'i faith, talks about fighting with ourselves until we conquer ourselves. And again, I think it's a lifelong process, but uh, that that year of service was really an opportunity for me to do that. You know, there were all sorts of, of physical tests during that year. I mean, I was in, ended up serving in this very small village, you know, with no running water and no electricity, and, you know, we bathed in the river, and which actually, that was kind of the fun part. I think the yeah. mental tests were bigger. You know, just learning to live with other people and people from a different culture and still my own personal issues that I was having to, you know, come face-to-face with. But it was a year of so much growth and so much learning. I mean, I don't know how much service I actually rendered, you know, to the community, but I certainly grew spiritually by leaps and bounds, and I'm so grateful. I actually wrote a book about it. Oh, you did? (laughs) Yeah. It's called A Rising. It's a a year of service handbook for volunteers. Uh, What's it called again? A Rising, colon, A Year of Service Handbook for Volunteers. It's published by George Ronald. It came out about a year ago. It just sort of recounts my my service experience in Ecuador and in other places and really just encourages youth to arise and offer a period of service, if only for just, you know, kind of the the growth that takes place and also the preparation that it gives you really uh, for a life of service. Now, what's interesting is that you grew up in a household that was rustic. Yeah. And that somehow that prepared you for your service so that maybe the physical part wasn't so difficult because of that, yet the, it was the mental tests that you were describing that really were the challenge. Yeah, yeah. The physical part was kind of fun. I mean, I it was definitely, the physical tests were greater than what I had grown up with, but still, I did grow up in the country. I was pretty hardy. You know, we didn't have TV or anything. I remember my... My brothers and my favorite form of entertainment when we were young was this big dirt mountain. It was literally just a mound of dirt in the backyard, and it just provided endless entertainment for us. We would, like, get in our bathing suits and just hose down, you know, the mud mountain and just play in the mud and build castles out of the mud and, like, mud pancakes, and it was better than any toy I could imagine. So <laughs> <laughs> so you, were an, you grew up earthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. So you spent a year in Ecuador? Yeah, I spent a year in Ecuador, mm-hmm. and then I I went to college in Boston, and I did so I went away to do um, periods of service during the summers because I was addicted by then. <laughs> um, I went back to Ecuador one summer. I spent a summer at, at Nabi at the Native American Baha'i Institute and then um, at Greenacre High School. And then I did another year of service after college um, in Swaziland. What were you studying at college? Oh, my goodness. In college, I studied everything. I just, <laughs> literally, I, I, I think I changed my major maybe ten times just because I was so enchanted by sort of the smorgasbord of, of offerings at the school. I just wanted to study all of it. So I ended up majoring in comparative religion and Spanish, but I think I dabbled in, <laughs> in, in almost every field during those four years. Tell me about your experience in Swaziland. Well, my experience in Swaziland was very different than my experience in Ecuador. I had this idea in my mind that service equaled sort of physical hardship because I had served in, you know, more rural areas and that it also, that one needed to sort of go abroad to be able to serve, which is not true at all. And that also that it really, I related it to sort of adventure, 
and you know, I had been in college, I had been in, in Boston where it was very comfortable and life was easy and I was really ready for like, you know, another adventure. So I thought, oh, you know, I could go to Swaziland and I, I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to work in a school, and so I sort of researched different, you know, high schools that needed volunteers, and I found out about this one in Swaziland. And so, again, even though I was in a very different place than I had been when I embarked on my year of service in Ecuador, I still had expectations of my time in Swaziland that were so different from what it turned out to be. But it was so good. It was such a test for my ego, and again, you know, we get just the test that we need. So I thought I would be in this rural village, you know, working with youth and doing things that were really exciting and, and, and challenging. And what I ended up doing for the first half of that year was sitting in this library, in this tiny office in the library, filing and stamping books day after day after day. I thought I'd be working with kids. I didn't really have any interaction with the youth. I was just in this office surrounded by books and filing cabinets. It was so hard. Mm. I mean, I think I think God has such a sense of humor, you know. He, yeah, right. <laughs> he always knows which tests are best for us. But, man, it was rough for mm. a while. And, um, you know, again, sort of wanted to go home. I was second-guessing sure. myself. I'm feeling like, oh, I should have gone back to Ecuador. I should have gone somewhere else. Why am I here? You know, all this energy I have is being wasted just in this office. But, again, over time, I, I learned to be a little bit more detached and also just that the you know, service comes in a variety of forms and it isn't always exciting, it isn't always glamorous, sometimes it's very dull, outwardly seeming at least, but there are all sorts of work that needs to be done. This is what I was called to do at that time and so I had to do it lovingly and in the spirit of service, so that was a, it was a good lesson for me. And you did that for a year? Once I had finally resigned myself to just the filing and the stamping and all of that, actually, after about four months, I was able to start teaching, you know, volunteer teaching in the middle school. I got to do the sort of thing that I had hoped to be doing, but I think I needed those few months of different type of service first, and then I, I got my reward during the second half of the year. And would you have stayed longer than a year if you could have? Yeah, I mean, I stayed even less than a year. It was really just sort of an academic year. I had graduated from college, and I was there in Swaziland, actually only like seven months from the beginning of October until May, I think. I was just was a volunteer, and I was just supporting myself from just oh, my right. savings, you know, that I'd earned from college. And so when my money kind of ran out, I realized, okay, I, I better go back and actually look for, look for a job. I knew I wasn't ready to go back to grad school, and I wanted to work in education, and I wanted to work in a high school. And so... I started looking for different opportunities for that type of work. I found out about this opening at School of the Nations in Brazil. The mother of one of my dear friends had just been given the position of director of the school there, and so through her I was kind of able to to get that job, even though I didn't have too much teaching experience, but I had a lot of passion and dedication. So, yeah, I ended up going there for two years, working as a, a middle school teacher. Can you share any stories about your time there at the School of the Nations in Brazil? That is an amazing school. I learned so much from being there. I'm so grateful for that experience. Actually, I am. Um, Jim and Jeanine Sacco of Greenacre are founders of that school. I spent a lot of time at Greenacre when I lived in Boston. And you know, I always talked to them about that school, and they had always sort of said, oh, you know, when you graduate, you should think about you know, going to work there. But for some reason, I never... I don't know if I never took it seriously or just the time wasn't right. And I 
you know, went off to Swaziland, but then I ended up going to the School of the Nations anyway. It's really just an extraordinary school. It focuses on, you know, educating world citizens, and, and the students come from, I think, 44 or more different countries. Most of the students are not Baha'is, but the school is Baha'i-inspired, so really based on Baha'i principles. The students learn about the Baha'i faith, and they learn Baha'i prayers. So I taught 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. I taught English, like language arts, and a class called World Citizenship, which was great. And then we also had the opportunity to design our own sort of elective course. And so I designed a course called I Love to Laugh. And it was just once a week, but oh my what was gosh. It, what was it called again? It was called I Love to Laugh. Oh, it was so much fun. I mean, obviously, with the course with that name, we pretty much just laughed, you know, for an hour and a half every week. But I... <laughs> When I was thinking, I mean, it's, you know, what a gift to be given as an educator to just get to design sort of the course of your dreams and get to teach it once a week without any sort of standards or anything like that to, to worry about. So I was thinking about Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'llah, and his, all those years that he spent in prison. And there's a story about how he, he at the end of the day, this horrible prison, these, these very difficult conditions, pretty joyless <laughs> he would gather all the believers together and they would recount kind of the most ludicrous and ridiculous things that happened to them during the day and they would all just laugh until they cried. Yeah. You know, I think laughter, you like prayer, really is food for the soul. So in this course, we just did different activities that would just make us laugh and laugh and laugh and it felt so good. The students said it really helped them you know, get through the more serious courses, math and history and all of that. Can you give me a for instance? Oh, in well, course? I mean, again, it was just an elective. It was just once a week, so it wasn't like we didn't really have that much time. Everybody would bring in stories or jokes because it was just once a week, so they would have to bring in something hilarious from the week. And so we would share that, and then we would do some activity that was either like some sort of game, like there's this great game called Honey, I Love You, But I Just Can't Smile, where you try really hard to make other people laugh, Sock Wars, which is... You throw socks at each other, balls of socks. Like if you get hit in the arm, then that arm is debilitated, so you can't throw with that arm anymore. If you get hit on the back, you have to lie down and try to throw from there, and it's just hilarious. Um, another game called Chinigans, where you make little upside-down faces on your chin, and you turn upside down and lip-sync, and it's hard to really explain. Oh, yeah, it's not yeah, really yeah, yeah. funny, but it, it, if you if see Your it, mouth looks uh, funny when it's upside-down. Yes, and so just things like that that were so silly yeah. and kind of ridiculous, but that would just make us laugh until our bellies ached. <laughs> so, yeah, so tell me about your world citizenship course. What was that like? Well, that course, so that was a course that it was called Ethics in previous years, which was really the course that had been put into the curriculum so that the students could have an opportunity to really learn about the Baha'i faith and about the different religions of the world because the students came from all different backgrounds. And so the first year we were doing the books in the junior youth empowerment curriculum, which and then the second year we began to implement the full circle learning curriculum. It's this wonderful curriculum designed by Teresa Lagness in Los Angeles. And it focuses on why we learn and connects learning to service and the application of value based concepts, which she calls habits of the heart, which are like virtues, and you know, it kind of integrates the academics and the arts and conflict resolution, and culminates in, in acts of service. So that was really the focus of this class in the second year. It was very, very successful there. It's, this is a curriculum that has been implemented in many schools around the world, so even here in New York City. 
What were the circumstances that had you leave the School of the Nations? Mm, well, it was very hard to leave. You know, I went in a two-year contract just thinking, you know, that two years would be the right amount of time. Like, the first year was really hard, you know, just because I wasn't a very experienced teacher. The school is academically pretty rigorous, and the parents were pretty demanding, and which it was good. I mean, they really was held to very high standards. So the first year was hard. But the second year, once I had kind of learned the ropes a little bit and felt more comfortable as a teacher, I just really just fell in love with it. And I could have stayed there forever, I think. But I felt that I really needed to go back to school, to go to graduate school, and that the longer I stayed there, because I loved it so much, the harder it would be to go back and get a master's degree. And so I just figured, okay, now is probably the time since you know my contract is ending. And I mean, I still think I would like to maybe go back one day but who knows? And that's what you're doing now? So, yeah. So now I'm in New York City. I'm in the second year of the master's program. For education? Yeah. Peace education, the degree is called. Oh, interesting. Tell me about the curriculum for peace education. Well, it's kind of an emerging field. I think there are very few peace education master's programs in the world, but I think there will be many, many more in the years to come. Basically, education with a focus on social change, on issues of peace and human rights and educational context. I'm very happy that you know I chose this program. I'm learning a lot. And you learn a lot just by living in New York City, too, which is a very different experience for me, especially having grown up you know, in a log cabin in the woods. This is a very different environment. I was going to ask you that. I mean, this is the, really the first time you've lived in a big city, no? Yeah, well, I lived in Boston. Oh, that's um, right. I forgot. But Boston's pretty small compared to New York. So, yeah, this is the first time I'm in a real big city. But even when living in Boston or New York City, did it take some time getting used to? Yeah, it does take some getting used to. And I still, you know, I really miss the mountains. And I miss the trees. And New York City has great parks and great community gardens. And, I mean, I live just one block away from a big, beautiful park. But it just isn't the same. You know, the high writings talk about the country being the place of the soul and the city the place of the body. I really feel that that's true, although I think the soul can flourish in an urban environment as well, and there are things that, that you can learn in um, these urban settings that you don't get when you're in the middle of the woods. So I think there are benefits to, to both places. And what school are you going to in New York? It's Teachers College at Columbia University. Hmm. You said you grew up as a Baha'i, that your parents were Baha'is... Do you know the story of how they became Baha'is? Yeah, I mean, I don't know all the details, but basically my mother in college at Oregon State University was roommates with a Baha'i who held firesides, which are, you know, events for people who are interested in learning more about the faith. She would host these gatherings in her dorm room, which, you know, she shared with my mother. So, you know, people were coming every week to have these discussions about the Baha'i faith and about spirituality. And so, you know, my mom just learned about the faith that way. And then. And she was sort of inclined toward spirituality to begin with? Yes, yes, very much so. And then my dad became a Baha'i shortly after. I think they also met in college. How did they uh, find the name Denali for you? Mm, well, <laughs> it's funny. You know, people used to just ask me that all the time. Like, where does that name come from? I've never heard of it before. But it's gaining popularity now for two reasons. One, because there's a an SUV, sport utility vehicle, made by GMC called the Yukon Denali, 
And uh, I've actually met people now. I teach a children's class on Sundays, and there's a little four-year-old boy in the children's class whose name is Denali, and he was named after the car. Um, so we have a special bond because we share a name. And also, I just learned that Sarah Palin's secret service name is Denali. But what I was named after is um, the mountain in Alaska. It's known as Mount McKinley now, but the original indigenous name is Denali. And my parents lived in Alaska in Ketchikan for a few years before I was born. And I have such a love of nature. Sure. Um, so I think the idea of naming me after a mountain really <laughs> appealed to them. And my middle name is Reed, which... <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, you know, when I was younger, I was just not into this weird name and wanted to change it to something much more normal. But um, but now, you know, I, I, I kind of like it. And my middle name comes from a Baha'i prayer, which says, you know, Oh God, make me a hollow reed from which the pith of self has been blown, that I may become a clear channel through which thy love may flow to others. So I'm, I'm a ways from living up to that name. <laughs> I'm grateful that, that my parents gave it to me. You just started graduate school? No, I'm in my second year. So it's only a two-year program, so I'm actually done in May. And do you have any ideas what you're going to do after that? That is a very good question. I have the great bounty of serving on the Area Teaching Committee for New York City now. And what is that? So that is one of the Baha'i agencies of the cluster, which is the geographic area around New York City. Um, It's actually just the five boroughs of New York City, which focuses on carrying out teaching projects to share with people the message of the Baha'i faith and promoting the spread of devotional gatherings of people getting together for collective prayer and overseeing programs of visits to the homes of newly enrolled Baha'is and people who are interested in the faith and things like that. And so that has really been one of the best parts of my experience here in New York. You know, I came just for school thinking, I'm not really going to like New York City. I'm just going to quickly come and do my degree and then, you know, leave right away. But now, you know, I'm learning so much through serving on the Area Teaching Committee and just, you know, as I said before, just through being in the city itself that I kind of feel like I would like to stay here for a while, for as long as I can. You know, right now, Baha'is are really being called on to Homefront Pioneer, which is, going to areas in our own country, areas where there are fewer Baha'is to, you know, help get Baha'i activities going there and help, you know, teach people about the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, New York City has many, many Baha'is. We have over 700. And so even though I would really love to stay here, I think that I I might be going to another area very soon. I'm not sure. Still mulling it over, huh? Yeah, just praying about it. And New York City's growing on you. It is. It is. My poor father, I remember when I was applying for colleges, I mean, of course, I think he hoped I would apply somewhere close to home or somewhere in, you know, less of an urban setting. But he said, you know, you can go wherever you want as long as it's not New York City. Please don't go to New York City. (laughs) You know, and I didn't really have any desire to go to New York City at the time. It's, It's just funny. This is the last place I ever thought I would live. I love it here. I mean, it's hard. There are definitely a lot of challenges. And as I said, you know, I miss the mountains. I miss nature. I miss quiet sometimes. But it's such a fascinating place. And it has a special place in Baha'i history as well because Abdu'l-Baha, in his his visit to the United States in um, 1911, 1912, spent more time in New York City than anywhere else in this country. He called the city the city of the covenant. We don't really know 
why or what the significance of that is, but we know that it's very special. We take great pride in, in New York being the city of the covenant. It's really wonderful to be able to go to the places where Abdu'l-Bahá spoke. He used to take walks in Riverside Park, and so I try to go there whenever you know the city gets too crazy and too loud and too fast. I try to just go to Riverside Park and you know just breathe deeply and just think about Abdu'l-Bahá and they say that he, <laughs> when he was here, he never let himself get caught up in all the, you know, sort of the whoosh of the city. He just maintained his calm. So I, I, I try to, <laughs> I try to do just that. Doesn't always work. <laughs> but yeah, he even revealed a special prayer just for New York City, which is such an honor for this city. I think. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so this is a prayer for New York, revealed by Abdu'l-Bahá. You can find it in a book called Abdu'l-Bahá in the City of the Covenant. It's not in the regular Baha'i prayer books. It goes, Bless thou, O King of Kings, the city of New York. Cause the friends there to be kind to one another. Purify their souls and make their hearts to be free and detached. Illumine the world of their consciousness. Exhilarate their spirits and bestow celestial power and confirmation upon them. Establish there a heavenly realm so that the city of Baha may prosper and New York be favored with blessings from the Abha kingdom. That this region may become like unto the all-highest paradise, may develop into a vineyard of God and be transformed into a heavenly orchard and a spiritual rose garden. So, you know, when you are out on the streets and you hear all the sirens and the horns and the people shouting at each other, it's hard to envision how Abdu'l-Bahá could have conceived of this place as a heavenly orchard with a spiritual rose garden, but in many ways I think it already is and and certainly will be in the future. So, (laughs) very hopeful. I'm assuming you selected this college because of the peace education curriculum. What do you think, I know you want to maybe move somewhere where the, the Baha'i faith needs more help, but from an occupation point of view, do you have a vision of what you would like to do now that you've got this curriculum under your belt? Yeah, um, that's a really good question, and I definitely, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the longer answer is, if I do stay in New York City, I would love to teach middle school here for a while. There are a lot of really interesting new charter schools here and just a lot of really exciting things happening in education, very progressive things in in this city, and also a lot of educational organizations that are doing great things that I would love to work for. Outside of New York City, um, it would definitely be harder, and I think in these next couple years, if I do go somewhere else to um, Homefront Pioneer, I may have to just settle for a job that I'm not as excited about, but I think that would be okay. I love washing dishes. People think I'm crazy, but washing dishes I find to be so meditative and just so soothing, and I figure, hey, you can wash dishes anywhere. So, (laughs) you know, it may not pay quite enough to pay off my student loans, but if it's only temporary, you know, (laughs) it wouldn't be so bad. But yeah, people think I'm crazy for washing dishes. Well, Denali, I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. I'm sure whatever you're going to do, you're going to be changing this world. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Denali Weiler, a young Baha'i who describes her experience helping the Baha'i faith in Ecuador, who is now finishing graduate school in New York City. 
For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. of spirit. The best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me, and neglect it not that I may confide in thee. By its aid thou shalt see with thine own eyes, and not through the eyes of others, and shalt know of thine own knowledge, and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. Ponder this in thy heart, how it behooveth thee to be, Verily justice is my gift to thee, and the sign of my loving kindness. Set it then before thine eyes. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.